Hey folks, attorney Andrew Branca here from Law of Self-Defense. My apologies for the hoarse voice. I must have picked up a bug someplace. In any case, yesterday was the ninth day of testimony in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves, the retired Tampa SWAT captain who shot and killed Chad Olson in a local movie theater in January 2014 after the two men had a verbal altercation that became physical. The defense presented only a single witness yesterday whose testimony consumed the entirety of the jury's day, defendant Curtis Reeves himself. Over the course of the day, 79-year-old Reeves was subject to a full two hours of direct questioning by defense counsel Richard Escobar, then another two full hours of cross-examination by prosecutor Scott Rosenwasson, and finally a brief 10-minute redirect by Escobar. The bottom line? Not only did the prosecution already far short of disproving Reeves' claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt not make progress towards achieving their burden of proof necessary for a legally meritorious conviction, they spent their two hours on cross of Reeves flailing around pointlessly and actually losing ground on a guilty verdict. This is a remarkable failure from a prosecution that has had, in effect, two chances to cross-examine this defendant at length and in minute detail, meaning at both the self-defense immunity hearing in which Reeves testified at length in 2017 and again yesterday, without managing to use that opportunity to advance their narrative of guilt in this case. It was, in fact, a humiliating performance for Prosecutor Rosenwasser. Following Ree's brief redirect by Counselor Escobar after the cross, the defense rested, and it appears that the state has chosen not to call rebuttal witnesses. At the closing of yesterday's proceedings, it was the court's stated expectation that the jury would receive its instructions from George Barthel this morning, hear closing arguments, and begin their deliberations shortly after lunch. On the legal merits of this case, the jury ought to return a unanimous verdict of not guilty before day's end. Before we dive into things, I do want to mention our sponsor, CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've been compelled to use deadly force in defense of yourself or your family and find yourself facing a charge of murder or manslaughter, it's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you are compelled to act in self-defense, it can be helpful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you can fight that legal fight the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depended on it, because really it does. I've looked at all the companies that offer similar services, as you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off your first year's membership using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. Okay, so let's dive into the testimony yesterday of Curtis Reeves. Uh, Reeves' testimony and direct questioning by defense counsel Richard Escobar really consisted of two separate components. 
The first was a roughly 90-minute review of Ree's training and experience as a law enforcement officer and as head of security for Bush Gardens in Tampa, and 30 or so years of his life in retirement since then. This was followed by roughly a 30-minute questioning, still on direct by the defense, on the shooting of Chad Olson itself in that movie theater in January 2014. For purposes of convenience, I've broken out that testimony into those two major segments in the embedded video in the text version of today's content. With respect to the questioning regarding Ree's training and experience, Ree's career in law enforcement can perhaps best be described as the very opposite of that of Kim Potter. Although, to be clear, there's no suggestion that Ree's career as a police officer was in any way less honorable than had been Potter's. Rather, where Potter had become a patrol officer at the start of her career and essentially stayed in that position for 27 years, still a patrol officer when she unintentionally shot and killed Dante Wright, effectively ending her career, Reeves occupied many different positions, often dangerous positions of high responsibility within his department. Reeves was indeed a very impressive recounting of a law enforcement career. Now, with respect to the portion of direct questioning about the shooting itself, the shooting of Chad Olson, his testimony was entirely consistent with the narrative of a justified shooting in self-defense, which he had established from first contact with law enforcement within minutes of the shooting. Now, the basic narrative of this defense, as presented by Reeves and his defense counsel, remains approximately the following. While waiting for the movie Lone Survivor to begin, and after the theater had announced that cell phones be turned off and silenced, Reeves found that Chad Olson's phone, in the seat immediately in front of his own, was shining in his eyes. Reeves leaned forward and politely asked Olsen to turn off his phone. Without turning to look at Reeves and still using his phone, Olsen responded with an F-bomb laced tirade. After waiting another minute or so to see if Olsen would nevertheless turn off his phone, without luck, Reeves leaned forward again and informed Olsen that he now had no choice but to involve management in the matter. Again, Olsen's response was not cooperative and he remained using his phone. At this point, there was no reason in the world to believe that the interaction between Reeves and Olsen would ultimately turn violent. Reeves left his seat, exited Theater 10, and found the manager at the customer service desk. There, he presented as calm and apologetic and not at all apparently angry, a demeanor confirmed by both the manager and a theater customer in their own testimony earlier in this trial. Reeves apologized to the manager for having to trouble him with such a petty matter and informed the manager of Olson's ongoing use of his cell phone in the theater. The manager informed Reeves that he would address the matter and told Reeves he could return to his seat. When Reeves returned to his seat, he observed Olson staring at him as he approached and speaking loudly about the theater manager. Approaching his own seat behind Olson, Reeves saw that Olson had by this time turned off his phone. Sitting down and retrieving his popcorn, Reeves sought to mitigate any remaining tension by telling Olson that had he known he would be getting off his phone, Reeves would not have contacted the manager at all. Shortly after this, the six-foot-four-inch Olson abruptly turned towards Reeves. Reeves received a blow to the side of his head that stunned him, delivered either by a fist or by Olson's cell phone. Based on later finding Olson's cell phone on the ground at his feet, Reeves strongly suspected it had been the cell phone, but he was unsure given the conditions. Reeves' glasses were askew, and as a result, his vision was somewhat fuzzy. This 
Strike by Olsen on Reeves was the first act of physical violence between the two men, initiated by Olsen, making the 43-year-old the initial physical aggressor in this confrontation. At this point, Reeves had been subject to physical attack by Olsen and was concerned the attack might continue. He pushed back in his seat in order to put his hand on the pistol in his pocket and to create distance from Olsen. Roughly 10 seconds after the initial blow, an apparently enraged Olsen turned and stood up in a seat, towering again over Reeves. Olsen's fist came at Reeves, withdrew, then came at Reeves again. At this point, Reeves perceived that he was being subject to an ongoing battery by the much younger and fitter Olsen, who stood over the seated Reeves and appeared intent on raining down a series of blows on the 71-year-old effectively trapped in the seat. It was at this point that Reeves, fearing death or serious bodily injury at the hands of the attacking Olsen, drew his three eighty caliber pistol and fired the single round that would pass through the apparently restraining hand of Olsen's wife and into Olsen's chest with fatal result. The shot fired occurred within a second of Olsen's most recent apparent blow targeting Reeves. At no point at any time since this shooting had Reeves made the slightest indication that the shooting had anything whatever to do with popcorn, nor that he was anyway angry at Olsen. Rather, he shot because he had a reasonable perception of imminent death or serious bodily harm at the hands of his attacker. This has been Reeves' consistent testimony since he was interviewed by police within minutes of the event throughout the past eight years, including the 2017 self-defense immunity hearing and including his several hours of testimony yesterday, and it is entirely consistent with lawful self-defense. This is the narrative of self-defense that the state has effectively failed to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt based on any reasonable view of the totality of the evidence as that evidence applies to each and every element of Reeves' claim of self-defense. That brings us to the cross-examination by Curtis Reeves, roughly two hours of cross-examination by prosecutor Scott Rosenwasser. And frankly, that can only be described as an ongoing humiliation for the state. It's worth keeping in mind what the state's obligation is in this case, in the technical legal sense. They need to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt at least one of the required elements of Rees' claim of self-defense. If they can do that, they have disproven self-defense entirely. If not, the jury will be instructed to acquit Curtis Rees of both criminal charges against him, second-degree murder for the shooting death of Chad Olson and aggravated battery for the shooting of Nicole Olson's restraining hand. That is, the state must prove any of the following beyond a reasonable doubt. Innocence, that it was Reeves who was the initial physical aggressor in this fight or that he had intentionally provoked Olson to be the initial aggressor. Imminence, that whatever threat Reeves was defending against was either already in the past or was a speculative future threat that may never occur. Proportionality, that the seated 71-year-old Reeves was not reasonably perceiving a danger of either death or serious bodily injury under the fists of the 43-year-old 220-pound standing Chad Olson. Reasonableness, that Reeves himself did not subjectively believe he was an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or that this belief was objectively unreasonable. The state's cross-examination by Prosecutor Rosenwasser not only failed to disprove even one of these elements beyond a reasonable doubt, not even coming close, he largely failed to target these elements at all. 
This in a trial where even the state's case in chief failed to come close to disproving any element of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Rather, Rosenwasser spent his two hours on cross-examination of Reeves on entirely ancillary and circumstantial issues largely unrelated to the actually relevant legal arguments on self-defense, and worse, he did so in a quavering and snide manner that screamed a lack of confidence in his own narrative of guilt. Rosenwasser's lengthy series of largely irrelevant gotcha questions either achieved no traction at all and were abandoned by him or received responses from Reeves that buttressed the defense narrative of self-defense and further undermined the state's narrative of guilt. Now, it's not really practical for me to summarize in great detail two hours of cross-examination and a few hundred words of a blog post, but that's why I have for you the video of that cross-examination itself for your viewing pleasure embedded in the text version of today's content so you can make your own assessment of how you think that cross went for the parties in this case. I would remind everyone again, however, that the state has had a full eight years to prepare for yesterday's cross-examination of Curtis Reeves, including having had Reeves on the witness stand for hours previously during the 2017 self-defense immunity hearing. That this flailing and ineffectual effort was the best the state could deliver yesterday is a damning indictment of this entire prosecution. Now, I will note that Rosenwasser ended his cross-examination of Reeves by noting that Reeves himself has in the past indicated that he second-guessed his shooting of Olson. Reeves readily conceded that he frequently second-guessed every moment of that day and that anyone who did not, under such circumstances, had something wrong with them. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that second-guessing does not mean realization that one has done something wrong. It merely means that one realizes that different choices could have resulted in a different outcome even if the choices made were each themselves perfectly valid and lawful. Had Reeves not decided to see a movie that day, or had chosen a different movie, or had sat in different seats, or had moved seats after his initial interaction with Olsen, or any of many other things that might have been done differently, perhaps he would not have ended up having to shoot and kill Chad Olsen that day. None of those alternative choices, however, are legal obligations on the part of Reeves, and none of them strips Reeves of his legal privilege to defend himself from Olson after Olson has initiated an unlawful, imminent, deadly force attack upon Reeves. On his brief redirect of Reeves, Defense Counsel Escobar essentially reinforced these points on the matter of Reeves' second-guessing of that fatal day, although, frankly, he did it less directly um, than I would have done, and I would say less effectively than I just did here. Perhaps Escobar will make the more effective argument on this point during his closing argument today. I certainly hope so. After the redirect of Reeves, the defense rested. My sense of the proceedings was that the state did not intend to present rebuttal witnesses. At that point, the jury was dismissed for the day and Judge Barthel began to read a draft of the jury instructions um, to the parties, presumably to ensure that the instructions in hand accurately reflected the agreement between the state and the defense on those instructions. Now, I confess I did not remain for this part of the proceedings because I knew we'd have a reading of the final jury instructions to the jury this morning. I did, however, capture the video of the reading of the draft instructions for your viewing pleasure. And again, that's embedded in the text version of today's content. 
Again, my expectations for today is that this morning the jury will receive its instructions from Judge Barthel, first thing, then hear closing argument from the state, closing argument from the defense, and finally, rebuttal argument from the state. At that point, the jury should be sent into the deliberations, hopefully no later than lunchtime, and with any luck and justice, return a verdict of not guilty by day's end. All right, folks, that's all I have for you on the Reeves trial proceedings from yesterday at the moment. I do want to remind you again, I'll be doing live stream analysis and commentary over at the Rakeda Law YouTube channel, as we have been doing throughout this trial. You can find today's live show for this 10th and perhaps final day of the trial at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn10. All right, folks, I hope to see a bunch of you there. In any case, remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to know the law, so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.